So, Atif, let's bring in your case. Yes, my patient is a 58-year-old high school science teacher who recently, around six months ago, for a few weeks, he started having left hip pain, especially while walking. At that time, he went to his primary care doctor, and the x-ray of the pelvis and the left femur revealed a lot of lytic lesions and actually the beginning of a pathologic fracture of the left femur. He came to see me, and we did the workup, and to make the story short, he turned out to have multiple myeloma, serum protein electrophoresis, immune electrophoresis. He had an IgG kappa with an IgG of 5.4 grams, with 4.2 grams monoclonal spike. IgA and M low, bone marrow aspirate and biopsy 40 to 45% monoclonal plasma protein, and fish deletion chromosome 13. CBC normal except for a hemoglobin of 10.5. Chemistry is normal, including LDH and beta-2 microglobulin. The MRI showed pathologic fracture. He required surgical fixation and received a few days of radiation therapy. And after that, he was started on chemotherapy. He received four cycles of bertuzumab, dexamethasone, and thalidomide. He achieved an excellent, very good partial response. But he kept on having, after four cycles, an M protein of 0.4 gram percent chemistries. His pain almost disappeared. And at that time, I sent him for autologous stem cell transplant. He had one just he is recovering from now. What about the issue of timing of transplant and the question of whether in some of these patients it can be delayed? Great question. And many patients now ask, since we've got so many new drugs in our armamentarium, and we can get so many people into a complete remission, which we used only to be able to do with transplant, many of them want to try to avoid transplant if possible, and they want to know whether that's certainly a reasonable approach. And the bottom line is that we don't really know because all of the data that support transplant after induction therapy used what we would now consider defunct induction regimens, whether they be VAD or VBMCP or thalidomide and dexamethasone. What I tell patients is that to some extent, I triage them based on their cytogenetic profiles. Because if you've got a patient with a good or intermediate risk cytogenetic profile, good risk being normal cytogenetics in fish, 1114 translocations, and even deletion of 13, you could kind of bump up into that intermediate risk group. Those are people who probably will benefit nicely from transplant, especially if the Velcade-containing regimens do a better job of clearing out their poor-risk disease, which hopefully will be the case. And so for a patient like that, if they get into a complete remission, I think going on to a stem cell transplant at that point, if they want to, is very reasonable. Although you can also make a case based on data from MD Anderson that suggests that if you're in a complete remission, irrespective of how you got there, your median overall survival is going to be at least 10 years. And whether you get there with chemotherapy alone or chemotherapy plus transplant didn't seem to matter 
the one disclaimer there is that that was a retrospective analysis and not prospectively randomizing patients into the different subgroups. Now, if somebody has high-risk cytogenetics, again, this would be the 17P, the 414, 1416, I think we can make an argument that those people benefit less well from transplant. The data from the Mayo and other centers would suggest that those people have a TTP of on the order of seven to eight months after transplant, which is just about the time, unfortunately, that they're starting to feel well from their transplant. And one could make an argument that for people like that, a standard auto would probably be less likely to benefit them and that maybe what they should get is either a different type of transplant, such as a mini aloe, if that's an option, or that maybe those are people who, if they get into a complete remission, should receive some kind of maintenance therapy and wait with maybe having stem cells stored away for the future if that's a possibility from an insurance perspective for use later on. Isaac? I have a question regarding the Velcade schedule. Mm -hmm. At your center, is there any experience with, there have been reports on using a 28-day schedule with Velcade. What are your thoughts on that, and do you think it compromises efficacy? It's a good question. We don't have any randomized studies that compare the Q3 to the Q4 week schedule. I think that if I were to use the Q4 week schedule, I would certainly want to use it with a combination and not use it alone. But our tendency is to go with the Q3 week schedule, whether that be with VTD or VRD or Velcade-Doxel combinations. What about the patient with renal dysfunction? Well, we have a lot of good drugs now that we can use for people with renal dysfunction. It depends a little bit on how severe the dysfunction is because you can have anything from a creatinine of 1.5, which can be normal for a 40-year-old, but very elevated for an 85-year-old versus going all the way up to people on hemodialysis. But Velcade appears to be safe and effective without dose or schedule adjustment in people with renal failure, dexamethasone certainly as well, thalidomide, and doxel you can give as well. Revlimid, there are some published dose guidelines for adjusting it in the face of renal failure. Most of those guidelines right now are based on pharmacokinetic data, and there are formal phase one studies ongoing to look at whether those recommendations are actually well-formed. I still try to avoid using Revlimid in people with significant renal failure unless I don't have other options because the dosing guidelines are still not yet completely validated in my mind. And it's about two-thirds renally excreted. So if you don't dose adjust it, you can run into much more of a problem with neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, infectious complications. What's your own algorithm for management of the neuropathy associated with bertezomib? What specifically will cause you to do what? Well, I think the most important thing is to have a good handle on the level of neuropathy that the patient has at baseline because some of the studies with very detailed neurological examinations, which I'm certainly not capable of, but have shown nonetheless that up to two-thirds to three-quarters of patients have a neuropathy even before they ever start treatment because of presumably the disease and other factors. And you need 
need to know where their symptoms are to begin with because what will sometimes happen is that patients at the beginning of therapy will tolerate their treatment because they feel that they need the chemotherapy to reduce their disease burden. And then as they begin to feel better because their disease burden is lessening, some of the symptoms that either accompany the disease or the treatment may then become more significant to them. And it's important to know whether their symptoms of neuropathy, for example, are truly worse or whether they simply take note of them more. Because if their symptoms are worse, then I think the best thing is to be aggressive in decreasing the dose of the Velcade from 1.3 to 1.0. The recommendations in the package say that if you have more severe grade 2 with pain or grade 3, that you should decrease the dose to 0.7 and use it once per week once the symptoms have improved. I don't have any personal experience to suggest that 0.7 actually works. So I don't reduce Velcade below 1.0. And if patients still have neuropathic symptoms at 1.0, I stop the drug and try to switch to a different regimen because I'm not convinced that 0.7 is actually beneficial. But other things that we can do, I know there are these vitamin supplement regimens that people advocate, but at least in my hands, I've not seen any subjective improvement nor any objective improvement in my patients. And now there is some emerging data that suggests that vitamin C may interact with Velcade, that EGCG and green tea may interact with Velcade. So I think we have to be careful in recommending more than a multivitamin for some of these patients. And I find that Elevil and Gabapentin are probably my best arrows to shoot at against neuropathy.